the only thing good cold is a beer. <laughs> right? There's no such thing as a, as a, unless you're doing like some crazy, you know, open heart surgery where you're meant to cool the patient down. There's nothing good about letting your patients get cold. From Hamsawil Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. On today's show, I'm delighted to welcome back, by extremely popular demand, anesthesia, feline and end-of-life care guru, Dr. Sheila Robertson, for our very first ever Round 2 interview. Sheila is one of the most insanely qualified, brilliant, yet humble people in veterinary medicine. So if you miss Round 1, then your homework is to go back to Episode 16 and catch up. You missed a beauty. Now, Sheila grew up in Scotland and graduated from Glasgow University, which sort of means we're twins. And her career in veterinary medicine spans more than three decades, which probably means we're not twins. And the other difference is hers encompasses numerous roles and qualifications. In actual fact, she's acquired four diplomas, one PhD whilst teaching at vet schools in the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. We're sounding less like twins by the second. She has held many prestigious positions, including work with the AVMA. She's a two-time member of the American Animal Hospital Association and American Association of Feline Practitioners Pain Management Task Force, and has served as president of the American College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia. That's saying nothing of the massive list of publications she's written or contributed to, all of which means she's pretty much out of sight at the good end of the Dunning-Kruger effect curve. In 2017, Sheila joined Lapala Veterinary Hospice as the medical care director and helps the team deliver the best end-of-life care experience possible. Now, before we jump into the episode, I just want to drop a very quick word from the show sponsor today, which is the FedEx Thrive community. If you're a young vet looking to find your feet in veterinary medicine, grow your confidence, avoid burnout and beat your inner imposter, then FedEx Thrive is for you. As a community member, you'll have access to 12 online core training modules, monthly coaching with experienced mentors and incredible toolkits to help you thrive in your career. Access to the community is available for just $25 a month and if you use the promo code podcast you will get a further 10% off. Head to vetexinternational.com forward slash thrive to take advantage of this offer. Now back to the show. I learned so much from my first conversation with Sheila that a round two was always on the cards and judging by how well the episode went you felt the same way too. So let's not hold back any longer. It gives me massive pleasure to bring you this my second conversation with the fantastic Dr. Sheila Robertson. Welcome back, Dr. Sheila Robertson, to round two blunt dissection. Yeah, well, thank you. It was sort of a bit impromptu because we're happened to be in Las Vegas yet again. First of all, congratulations. You are, I've got the stats up here. I know you like some stats and some data, <laughs> Sheila. So Some science. A little bit of science. Which, and this is as close to sciencey wincey as I get. So if we look at the all the stats for Blunt Dissection Podcast over the past 12 months, look whose episode is number one. Episode 16, Dr. Sheila Robertson has over 3,000 plays in the last 12 months. How's about that? Oh, that makes me... Oh, quite, that's quite actually popular. that makes me feel very proud, <laughs> it does. and I'm very surprised, I have to say, but you oh, are, thank you. You've beaten into second place. You're in good company. So Diedrich Gelderman who's an amazing chap from Australia, and Bash Hallow, yep. who is also of these shores, although yeah. has a more generically American accent than you do. 
Yeah, but the the one thing is, after you interviewed me, I've started listening to the podcast too, and I've loved them all. They're they're just so much fun to listen to. Does that mean you are two thousand five hundred of those plays? <laughs> <laughs> you just, no, you just so, yourself. so one of them is my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Bless. Yeah. Now your your mom. So you were recently back in Scotland. Yes. Because we now message back and forth a lot about when we're going back to back to Scotland. And so you were recently back at home. Now, was it your mum's birthday you were back It was my mum's 90th birthday. Incredible. In January. Yep. So I flew overnight from another conference and managed to get there in time for lunch on her birthday. What yeah. a brilliant age. And yeah, she uh, still drives. She still drives. Yep. Actually, my one of my grannies went to 97, which was phenomenal. She never drove. My other granny... She was on the road. I mean, I'm not sure she should ever have been on the road, even when she was my age. Yeah. Such was the craziness of her driving. But where does your mum live? So my mum lives in Falkirk, okay. so between so Glasgow home. and Edinburgh. Yep. yep. And she's never had an accident in her car, never had a traffic violation ever, like in all the years that she's driven. It's amazing. Oh, amazing. And she's still, so she's, she's a good 90 as well, by the sound of things. Yep. That's rather cool. Now, we're in Las Vegas, and there's, it seems like there's a, a, not a Bermuda Triangle, but perhaps a Nevada Triangle of some kind. Because there's certain things that, that seem to keep happening whenever we meet. And one of those things was, and it's great to connect that in there, but the first thing you said to me when we met just now was, well, you, I'll, I should let you tell the story yep. and I'll shut up. So this time last year, some amazing things happened with um, Laura Muir, the... Um, amazing athlete and veterinarian and then the first thing I said to you in the lobby was this is just really weird because do you know what Laura Muir did yesterday and what she managed to do was break the Scottish one mile record that has stood for 31 years I believe by more than five seconds. Incredible what was the actual time do we have the time on that? It's four minutes and you know, I can't remember exact numbers, but she smashed the old 31-year-old Scottish record by over five seconds. And what I loved is that when she was interviewed, she said she was really chuffed about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I understood what she meant. It's such a Scottish word to be chuffed, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so um, she seems very happy and she looks very fit and partly injury-free and doing great. Look at that. So she is her sixth British record. Yep. Four minutes, 18 seconds. seconds. 18.75 seconds the third fastest mile in history and broke her own 1500 meter national indoor record that's pretty incredible yeah. she's on a roll very well done laura yeah you still got to get her on the show i know i know i've actually i've not messaged her for, I, I sort of have a bit of a i don't cyber stalk her because that would be weird and creepy but i have messaged her and and she has occasionally responded i expect she's probably quite busy now yeah well, I, guess I imagine she listens as a devoted listener to Blunt Dissection and <laughs> probably somewhat overwhelmed at the quality of the questioning and the, you know, the, the auspicious company that she would be keeping by coming yeah. on the podcast. So, but she'd be a good person to talk about life-work balance with what she's doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And how to get places in focus. So, Laura, we're, we're going to get you on. We've got to have the, the Glasgow Mafia uh, <laughs> representing on the podcast strongly. So I suppose we should probably talk about something, you know, vaguely related to veterinary medicine. Yeah. If you wanted. I mean, I'm, I don't mind one way or the other. Oh, wait, no, you, you told me about, we're going to keep this, the theme a bit Scottish now. So vegan or vegetarian haggis? 
It, so I slightly managed, left field. So, yeah, no, so yeah, so when I was home in Scotland, it was Burns Night. So that's January the twenty fifth. All right, explain Burns Night. So a bit more. Burns Night. So Burns, Robert Burns Rabbi was Burns. Um, one of the most the famous. The other bard. Yep, the Scottish bard. One of the most famous poets in Scotland. Yep. He wrote some very, I thought, very moving poetry about yep. life, about animals. The one about the little mouse that yep. was caught in the middle of the field when they were cutting down the field very passionate writing so his birthday is celebrated in scotland and actually apparently the other place that celebrates him in a big way is russia um he's very popular in russia that's interesting i didn't yeah. know that i think he was a bit of a rebel in um oh yeah yeah so burns night in scotland story about that. yep so burns night in scotland is we eat haggis but you can actually now get gluten-free haggis and you can get vegetarian haggis and i'm not I think it was. You can get vegan. I think it was stuff, pretty yeah. vegan. McSween, McSweeney's or something. McSweeney's, yep. And, and it's um, very nice. And then you eat that with mashed potatoes and turnip or Na- champit tatties and neeps. Bash it neeps. As we, we would say. Champit tatties. And then, of neeps. course, there's a little bit of either whiskey or jambui involved. Naturally. Yes. And, um, and it's just a nice um, traditional Scottish evening. I've got, I had it with my family. It was nice. I've got two funny haggis related stories or burns night related stories so Sheila expand upon for those that are not quite aware what haggis actually is or what non-vegetarian haggis is because it's not very vegan yeah so haggis is a I guess a food product delicacy that that has been around oh probably for hundreds of years and basically what they did was they took all the leftover parts of a sheep so, you know, the lungs and all the the sort of non, you know, real meat pieces. And then they stuffed it into the sheep's stomach. And then what you do is you boil it in a pan of water for a long time. Hours. And it's it's mixed up with a lot of oatmeal or yep. porridge, as we would say, and spices. Yep. And so that was a traditional, you know, maybe poor man's food, yep. I guess. And then yep. it just became traditional. And now it's actually, you know, like some of the top chefs in Scotland have it as a sort of, you know, a special, you know, part of the menu. But now it comes as gluten-free, vegan, vegetarian versions. (laughs) And they don't use a real stomach anymore. (laughs) Right. So on that story and preface by this is pre-vegan days. So one thing I was invited to do, I do a mean toast to the haggis. So, uh, and I have won a born singing competition in my youth as well. So, although don't ask me to sing it now because I was quite young. But ye bonny banks and braes. But the story is. So you've done the address to the haggis. Oh yeah. Yeah, Oh wow. So it was. I was invited to do this at to a. It was a religious group. I shall not name the religious group, but it's safe to say they'd not done their homework. And so Burns, as you've alluded to, had a colourful history. And was, was a, a bit of a, a bad boy, it might might be safe to say. So he was a tax inspector, I think, or a, a VAT collector. So. And like the ladies, I think it's also yep. well recorded. And also like the good drink, not unusual in Scotland. So I was invited to do the Toast to the Haggis, which was a very kind invitation. I was very grateful for that. But I was also curious because it was a, a very fastidious, non-alcohol drinking you know, straight-laced religious community that had asked me to do this. And I knew, I knew one of the, the members of the community very well, which is why they'd asked. And so they, they got an amazing haggis, and it was a proper haggis, so it was an old sheepskin. And, mm. I, you know, they had a piper in, and we came out with flags. And, and so I did the address to the haggis. And, in, and at one part of the address to the haggis, 
and the line is see it's gushing entrails thick and 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 so you you have to stab Damn. the haggis and yep. cut the haggis open and then all of the innards sort of spill out well i was gesticulating quite wildly with this gigantic <laughs> carving knife the mayor of the town where I was doing it was sat to my right. I nearly cut him with a knife at least six times. There's a photograph of an abject look of horror on his face as I start carving up the prize and his realization of what actually was in front of him was actually a sheep's stomach full of brown stuff, and which I've not I've realized is not selling haggis brilliantly here. So I did that and it went great. And everyone loved, loved it. Then the toast to the immortal memory was because I think at that point they sort of realized, ah, actually this is he's probably not brilliantly aligned with our religious community's values so the the toast the moral memory was well he had his faults but he did do some good poems so it was all right really <laughs> that was about it <laughs> i thought oh you'd be lynched in scotland for that but so that was my best haggis story another one which is super quick because it's your podcast not mine yeah. but um was i once did a, a burns night for all of my friends and i bought a haggis called the chieftain and I got it shipped down from Glasgow and it arrived in this box and the box was huge. I mean, as big as this table, maybe three feet long. And it was packed with sort of, you know, ice boxes to mm -hmm. keep it cool. So I brought the haggis out and I realized I didn't have a pot big enough to cook the haggis. <laughs> and not like you can cut it in half because it's all going to spray out everywhere. So I had to go around all of my neighbor's houses with this giant haggis, which is about the size of this pillow under <laughs> my arm, knocking on doors of people I barely knew saying, I've got a haggis emergency. Have you got a giant pot? So I eventually found a, a cauldron big enough to put this thing in and cook the haggis. And, and so then all my neighbors thought I was a complete mentalist. So there you go. There's you some go. Burns Night nonsense for yeah. you. But for the Americans listening, usually the Scottish people try and fool the Americans when they come over to Scotland and they're asking about haggis and we usually tell them it's a, a little wild animal that you don't see very often and it lives up on the hills and it's got one leg shorter than the other so it can run around <laughs> around the hills without falling down and you know so there's all sorts of stories get told to the Americans about the haggis when they come over. Right and the way you hunt haggis is? You stop it make it turn around so <laughs> it rolls down the hill because of its uneven legs. And so you've got haggis catchers at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> now, you remember Jack Boyd from Glasgow oh. University? Yeah, he taught me anatomy. And me. So were you part of this uh, hijinks moment? Glasgow had, they published a scientific paper, a peer-reviewed scientific paper on haggises no. in, in the vet record. Is that not maybe Haggai? It probably would be Haggai. <laughs> <laughs> but they published this in the vet record so that's the british veterinary association's journal and somehow jack and co got this bona fide article published and i think it was published on april fool's day oh okay. uh, the, the magazine was coming out and it was the april edition and so they published an, a full paper on the lesser spotted haggai yeah. uh, in the highlands yeah well the vet records got a good sense of humor because they did one on um, Brunus Edwardius on April the 1st. And it was all the problem, it was all the injuries and ailments of teddy bears. <laughs> so they do have a good sense of humor, but the Brunus Edwardius, that was, that, was, that was one of the, you know, I have that one somewhere that's great. Kids just love it. 
Well, that's actually quite a nice segue into, because last time we spoke, and I have to say, and, and one of the things I'm really keen to sort of, you know, pleased and grateful for you coming back on was just, you know, your, a bit more of your story. And particularly, I mean, I guess a good start point is, you know, your journey to America. So we talked mm-hmm. last time, I think, about your clinical interests of, you know, starting out as a, as a surgeon and then moving over towards anesthesia. We didn't really get backstory on the, how did you end up in Florida, you know, from Glasgow? You know, what are the intersection yeah. points around the world yeah. that happened there? So right after graduation, I went and worked in a private practice, mixed animal practice in Warrington. Yeah. And we might have mentioned that. Yeah. And then I did my first sort of training down at Bristol as a house surgeon. And that's where I went from, flipped from surgery to anesthesia. Yeah. And then I did my PhD there, which I loved. And was looking for a job, couldn't immediately find a, a job in anesthesia. So took a little bit of time off and went to Switzerland and cooked for skiers and did that. And then I was like, oh, I need a job. <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. I wait, need wait, a job. Wait. That's, let's that just pays. backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. <laughs> because, right. So talk me through. So you finished your PhD. Yep. You've completed, you've had your interrogation and submitted yep. your thesis. You have the, the letters before your name now. Yep. And after. To Shelley. Shelley Girl. Shelley Girl. Where, yep. did, where did you go and what was the decision? It Was this just a like, stuff it, I've had yeah, enough no, of no, academia well, at this it was point. A, I didn't do a gap year after university. So, you know, and that wasn't really a big thing in my day. But um, I was actually really looking for a job and I couldn't actually find anything specialized in anesthesia you know in the UK at that time and then I thought well maybe I could you know I love to ski but it's expensive yeah <laughs> and I didn't have a lot of money Where there did you learn to ski were you did you ski in Scotland or did uh, no I didn't actually not it much certainly wasn't um, Bristol so I went over to Austria like with some friends and oh. took lessons and learned and then just got the did bug did you go to Ischgl uh Kitzbühel Kitzbühel oh so, one up yeah so got <laughs> seriously one up <laughs> so got got the bug so I applied for a job with a Scottish um, ski company yep. called um, Activity Travel yep. as a, you know, sh- what we call chalet girl, but for Americans, <laughs> that might not sound very good. Um, <laughs> basically, that was looking after a private chalet, cooking, cleaning, you know, helping out the guests and so on. So yep. I applied for the job, got the job, and I was sent to Verbier. So I was there from November of eighty. 80- Five, 84 until the following summer actually because it's a glacier resort yeah so long ski season yep and it really taught me to do something i'd never been trained to do you know cook for people that were starving every night you know which kind of starving helps. and drunk <laughs> yeah so it helps because they would just about eat anything because they've been <laughs> skiing all day but i'm actually quite a i was going to ask like what was your I'm, I'm culinary forte at that point just had learned by cooking for all my friends when I was, you know, at Bristol, university. At university, and so it wasn't like blue cabbage soup, a la. No, yeah, I Bridget mean, it was Jones meant to be, kind of you know, somewhat cordon bleu, but yep. it was good, solid food um, yep. for skiers. And you know, afternoon tea. Of course, we made afternoon tea and cakes, and yeah, that was interesting. Science project, living at three thousand meters, 
because you know water boils at less than yeah <laughs> you know it boils at a much lower temperature right. and then your raising agents have to be all altered at that altitude so baking was an experiment in itself oh no so did you have to relearn all of that yeah stuff? i had to you actually so there wasn't like courses you could take and say hey like your muffins are just going to be flat if you don't there's actually high altitude baking recipes that you can look up and it tells you how to alter all your ingredients based on altitude. Right. So I'm, my my yep. brain wants to step through this for a second. Do you need you you must need do you need more baking powder or less because um, the... well, if you put in too much, it tastes just like bicarbonate of soda. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Right. So there's a little mixture there, and um, you know, it's just like science, like suddenly triggering in. Yeah. When we were skiing on the mountain each day, you know, and it was it's a bit it's a high resort. I yeah. kept wondering why you couldn't get a really hot cup of coffee there. Forgive my ridiculous ignorance, but are we Alpine? Uh, uh, yeah, in, in the Alps or are we in Pyrenees at this point? So Verbier is, you know, sort of like, it's not that far from the border with Italy. Okay, right. Yeah. So you're sort of and up in the high it's Alps. Very, and you can see the Matterhorn from... Yeah, there. right. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so yeah, 3, you never meters. get a hot cup of coffee. You couldn't, you just like, I was like, and then I, of course, realized, okay, oh, yeah, you know, water boils, <laughs> like you know, at a lot lower temperature at right, that altitude. Right, right. So <laughs> you're not going to get you, a good cup of tea yeah, anywhere yeah. there. But then I kind of figured it all out because I understood like that vaporizers, anesthetic vaporizers work differently at altitude. So uh, like, and that used to come yeah. up on our, all our exams. Like, you know, what if you're trying to anesthetize a patient in Colorado? Yep. Da, da, da. So I was like, okay, this makes sense. <laughs> Do you have to run your anesthetic gases at a lower percentage? Yeah, well, so your vaporizer, so setting, your vaporizer setting's at the same, but what's actually happening is all a little bit different. And is it ha what's happening in the body or no, what's happening not, in the vaporizer not, not itself? Not really, but almost everybody that you anesthetize at that, or every animal you anesthetize at, at high altitude you know, has a much higher hematocrit. Yeah, of course. And maybe they're... different blood gases, but their oxygen content's normal because they've compensated. Right. So all this physiology that I had learned from all my NSCs exams kind of came around to remind me that the coffee wasn't going to be hot. <laughs> It was all worthwhile after Yeah, all. took a PhD and a, three years of anesthesia to figure out why coffee's not hot in verbiage. Nothing you could do about it, but... Yeah. <laughs> Except maybe go into a decompression chamber and get right. a hot cup of coffee. Right. Like, did you ever do anything like that? To, no. It wasn't that desperate. No. no. And you would have no chance of having a good cup of tea because you wouldn't have the water hot enough to be able to get it, the leaves it was, infused. Well, the remember when you go skiing the tea's glühwein right it's um it's you know alcoholic tea usually <laughs> i've not so so it's usually pretty potent right <laughs> okay so i'm thinking by i've never actually drunk tea on a skiing holiday at all it's either water or beer yeah so yeah so then we got through the year and, and, and then I realized I needed a, a real job. Right. And actually, um, I heard that somebody was looking for someone just to fill in for a year. Yes. And, you know, communication back then wasn't the way it is now. I remember having to run down to the phone box <laughs> in the village and um, like feed it with a lot of coins to call this person that I'd had a letter from saying that they were looking for someone to fill in for a year in Canada. And that's when I ended up in Saskatoon for a year. Excellent. So what was that role? And 
So oh, in Saskatoon, four. one of the anesthesiologists there wanted that's, to... That's out west of Toronto, we, so further out west of Oh, a long Ontario. way west. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like on the prairies. Yeah. Like we're talking in the winter, it's like minus 55 Celsius. I just got back from Toronto speaking at the OVMA and they said it's minus 20. And I noticed a funny thing. Love you, Canada. Love you, Canadians. Right? But here's one thing I observed. They don't talk in real numbers for the weather. They talk in wind chill. Yep. Which is, and I've never experienced that before. So they're like, it's it's minus, it's going to be minus 35 outside. And I'm looking at my phone and it says minus 20. Uh, and then uh, and so I thought, oh, it's, it's quite cold, but yep. it's not minus 35. And I went out to get a taxi and I've never so quickly, because I didn't put my gloves straight on. I thought, I'll just get in the line. And the wind was howling. I've never in such a short space, it's like a pain in my hands was mm-hmm. incorrect. And, and they weren't white. It wasn't like, you know, I get like the, the white finger. Oh, the Renaults. Right. They were bright red. Like, I'm like, wow, actually, you would not want to be outside yeah. in this. Yeah, Saskatoon was, the, you know, the minus 55, but the way it came on the radio in the morning, it was, you know, it's minus 55. And if it wasn't a windy day, with the wind chill is going to be minus 56. And then immediately they told you how long it was safe to have bare skin exposed so like this morning you can have your bare skin exposed for two nanoseconds <laughs> unbelievable yeah what about i mean i saw people running so here's an interesting sort of anesthesia airway related thing you are bringing in extremely cold air into your airways what does that do how long can you safely do that for without like freezing your your bronchi? It, it was a huge challenge because i was quite fit and trying to do things like that there too and it basically the airway reactivity i mean you would like inhale and it was kind of often you'd be like (gasps) you know it was you know gasp and if you had tears in your eyes or anything and you blink things start to you know you're covered in you know you've got so many clothes on and because when you exhale through a a face mask you know then all this it's all moisture Moisture and icicles, and so basically, I found an indoor place. (laughs) Just yeah, yeah. I found a few. I found an indoor running track that, of course, was very popular. Because yeah, it's. I mean, you literally couldn't expose your hands or your face. I mean, it was you would get frostbite. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Uh, and of course, the animals. You know, they keep getting them in, and you know, there was a lot of cats um, that had you know little nubbins for ears and tails missing and a lot of the cattle I thought they had been docked. Gangrenous? So they would just freeze and yeah, then, and then go they gangrenous just, and fall off? And then fall off and they survive and I thought a lot of their cows were all docked but it was just, you know, <laughs> they'd lost their tails. They'd lost their tails. It must be, and I was just speaking to a few of the, the vets and you know, I was just asking and I was half asking in, in jest because I've only lived in very warm country, well no, Scotland's not very warm, mm. in fact Britain's not very warm, but when I've lived abroad overseas, it, Australia, super warm. And, mm. and so you walk your pets there, you see people walking dogs on hot asphalt and you think, <laughs> what are you doing, you idiot? Like the dog is clearly trying to stay in the shadows and, and, and doesn't want to move and, and just don't seem to have that in their head. Walking dogs in Canada, the absolute opposite. Like I, I said in jest, oh, do you have to put boots on their feet? And and yes, absolutely. Freeze their paws. And, yeah. I don't know. You don't probably don't know this, but I've done a lot of work with working dogs and this exact issue of like their paws, like when they, like, you know, after 9-11, when all those rescue dogs went in and they were on the rubble pile and, you know, burned paws and so on. And then obviously in the very cold weather, 
And it's a real challenge because when search and rescue are working dogs actually wear the the protective footing, yeah. their ability to splay their feet is inhibited. Yeah. So it actually becomes quite dangerous for them because they're not as stable. And so there is a, a big like you the know more risk of fractures. More, more risk of them slipping and yeah. and so on. So there are, you know, things that they do, like the amount of time on the rubble pile. And cleaning them off and then in the for the snow and stuff you know getting all the hair balls off and you know the ice balls off but um yeah no i did quite a bit of work actually with military and and police dogs actually training their handlers to recognize emergency situations that they could maybe do something about before they got veterinary help and this became a huge issue i mean after 9 11 a lot of the dogs had injuries and lacerations and so on, and we weren't prepared for that. Now we are, and there's courses all around the country now that train, you know, police officers, first responders, the SWAT teams, you know, how to look after their dog and recognize heat stroke. Yeah. And then I did a study in uh, when I was at Florida, because heat stroke kills. Unfortunately, every year we lose some, um, you know, some of the. Well, all the police dogs are amazing and military dogs. Incredible. But they animals. do, they die of heat stroke. Because they're sitting in the back of vehicles for quite well, a long time. Well, they over, you know, like a long time out on a search or yep. they um, are sitting in a vehicle and no one kind of like, you know, thinks or is accidental. Yeah. So we did actually a study where they, the dogs that, you know, go after the bad guy and grab them. Yep. And we actually had them swallow um, temperature sensor pills. Yep. yep. And we could monitor their temperature and um, I mean, I mean, their temperatures go up so fast, and even within ten minutes of working in the Florida heat, yeah, compared to you know winter and the humidity and so on. And the only way they can, when they get done with working, they have to pant to, and some of them are panting so hard, they're almost like dizzy because their CO two levels are so low, right. they feel almost faint, and the officers do know that um, when they're like that, they're, you know, they're not as obedient because they just can't function. Yeah. Like, you know, if you and I hyperventilated, we'd kind of start feeling lightheaded. So we got a lot of, like, really interesting data and tested out, like, if it was worse if they wore their Kevlar vests to protect them. And then we, um, there's a company that actually makes this military, like, chili vests for the military for policemen but they also make them for dogs and we tested out and they they sit around their belly and actually for some of the dogs that helped a lot to wear their cooling vest car radiator yep it's um made out of like basically it's some type of um cooking oil so it's not like i because you know you can't have ice against your skin yeah and you drop it in a we used to take out you know like containers drop it in this ice cold water and it turns into different formulation and then you slip it on underneath their vest and right against their belly and it certainly helped a lot of the dogs that's amazing so this was work done whilst you were at florida Mm -hmm. how did that work and were you directly involved in was it working with the dogs from 9-11 or is that just when you say we as you mean as a profession we generally weren't yeah so i think as a a profession we weren't prepared and didn't know enough about the problems with working dogs until we saw, you know, what happened at 9-11. Right. And then, you know, I just knew from working with a lot of, you know, dogs that came into our clinic that were, yep. you know, police dogs, you right. know, search and rescue, that, you know, we needed to do more to help them because there's, they're, well, they're, so, they're irreplaceable for a lot of jobs. 
and thousands of man and dog hours into training them. So they're irreplaceable. And these, you know, the people that their their partner, you know, so the human and the dog yep. partner is a bond that it's a very, very strong bond. Yeah. And so, you know, now, you know, we actually had a, an officer that came in one of our training schedules and then he spent the two weeks with us and then he was out after Hurricane Katrina and he actually recognized bloat in two of the police dogs that were out searching and, you know, everyone said, no, they're just, it's because we bathed them and they maybe swallowed some shampoo and that's why they're looking. He goes, no, 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 they have blow. I know. <laughs> this police officer, he's actually sort of a high level, you know, he, he works, you know, more FBI type thing. Yeah. He actually trokerized the dogs. Oh, wow. And then he seconded a Black Hawk helicopter. And because they're, you know, treated the same as police officers, because they're so valuable and important. And he managed to find out where there was a functional veterinary hospital actually, you know, after the hurricane. Yeah. And they flew them there. In the, he's, he sent me photographs of the dogs in the helicopter and he's got their trokers in and he's got them on oxygen. And he's actually already placed an IV catheter with the help of the medics. And they get them to a veterinary hospital they both go through surgery and they both survived. That is incredible. So that made me very proud that we're all helping, Yeah. you know, as a profession, helping them help their dogs. And not just to dwell on the point, the value of these animals is enormous. I worked with the Metropolitan Police Dogs in London a lot. And they were the, firstly, they were the best dogs I've ever worked with. Yeah. And if, if you were bitten by one of those dogs, there would be an investigation into the handler. Yep. Not that there was, and, and the only dogs that were, it was always the Malinois. <laughs> yeah. They have a screwless. They're dry. Like never want to be chased by a Malinois it, ever. Well, if you don't surrender to a Malinois, yeah, you're, then, hey. <laughs> chunks <laughs> Whatever are comes out. next. <laughs> chunks are coming out. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I asked them if I could wear the bike kit and I'll just go to. for a run, and they wouldn't let me. Yeah. Well, we when we were doing our heat stroke study, with the dogs in Florida, they actually, we had the dogs wearing a GPS on their collar. Yeah. And then when we downloaded that data, when they take off after the bad guy, they hit like 30 miles an hour. And then when they hit them, when they grab, you know, the, the arm, yep. they go from 30 miles an hour to zero. Yeah. And um, almost nobody can remain standing. Even these big police officers, they're like down, down. on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And once you're down, you're, you're in all kinds <laughs> you're of toast. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered about injuries. You know, I was wondered, we didn't see, let me just come back to the value. Because the value of a, 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 the man hours that go into the training of that couplet, that duo of man and beast is incredible. You're probably talking, I don't know what it is in dollars, but it was it was a couple of hundred thousand pounds worth of investment per officer animal pairing yeah i mean to the purchase price of a puppy like well now in, in the u.s the military have their own breeding program yeah. in yeah. in lackland and but you know you're talking about starting with a ten thousand yeah. dollar animal and then you've got hours and hours and yeah. hours on top of that yeah a good yeah. couple of years worth of yep. training to be getting anywhere near a standard and it, it is incredible the way that they'll just flick from being you know quite social and socialized to I'm going to take that person down. Yeah, their on-off switch is pretty incredible. I mean, that's the the military, the Malinois yeah. and stuff. 
you yeah. know, we always have the search and rescue dogs, the bloodhounds that I've worked with that yeah. are just like la you know, go yeah, for hours, right, right, right. you know, and obviously they're using a lot of them, you know, for tracking people that have disappeared, like, you know, Alzheimer's patients. And yeah. so they all, some of them are endurance athletes and are out there for a long time. And, and you do need to train them to stop and drink and because, you know, they have such drive that that's all that's on their mind. And yeah. so I think we've learned a lot with various people around the country. Um, Penn State um, or University of Pennsylvania have a very good working dog group and they um, have a lot of research money and looking at traits and health issues. And they track the 9-11 dogs and all of them are now gone, but yeah. they tracked all their health issues from 9-11 until all of them, you know, were either euthanized or, or died yep. and looked at what they had, you know, dealt with, what was the commonest problem on the rubble pile, what could be done to avoid that and, and came up with established work rest cycles yep. that needed to be adhered to right. so that they func they actually worked well. And, and that was sort of, yeah, so we learned an awful lot um, about the dogs was since su then. Surprised me that they go because they're athletes, but they go right. from zero to full on. Yep. And, you know, they'll sit for hours on on a search or on a rescue mission in the back of a vehicle, to then explosive activity, yep. high energy stuff. And you think like if we did that, like we pull muscles, there'd be all sorts of things would go wrong. But but they just they seem to cope. Yeah. yeah, I think they've really got the they understand the training now. You know, their fitness their nutrition. The other good thing is that nearly every police dog that I've ever worked with in the last, say, five years, it's almost routine now that they're all pexied, so yep. they don't get a GDV. And all yep. the military dogs in the US yep. are pexied before they're shipped out to Afghanistan or Iraq right, or wherever right. they're going. So at least that's one less, you know, potentially lethal thing that they need to deal with. Now, there's a sidebar which is of interest to know. I've heard conflicting things recently about the value of Pexies. What's the latest thinking on that? So, actually... Like the the, the, the yeah. brain that knows all of this stuff. So, one of the... Actually, one of the residents, when I was at Michigan State, so that was up until 2014, we had two of our surgery residents were military residents. And so they're always looking for something, you know, that's relevant to their career in the military. And they were looking at all the PEXI results. And so the, the PEXI will stop the twist. Right. They can still bloat. But yep. one of the residents actually started to find that the dogs that are PEXI'd may have a higher incidence of having a, a colon volvulus. Ah, which, of course, is like very lethal. Right. Now, it was, you know, small numbers and it's yep. being published, but he actually did show that, you know, that would be the next thing that we need to kind of think about in those dogs. Yeah. You know, it didn't happen very often, but it happened more if they had been pexied and if, right. if not. But it's still a very rare um, right. twist. And, I, and, and I usually it's very much a German Shepherd yeah. and sometimes a Malinois um, right. issue. It's something you almost never see in a golden, you know, in yeah. a Labrador retriever. Right, right, yeah, right. So. Did I read somewhere it increases the, is it increasing problems with reflux or ibs or something being associated with they seeing trends with that with pexies? okay you're ahead of me on that one that I'm one i haven't not, i'm probably making up i would imagine <laughs> no, no, i'm no. not ahead of you and very much no. in the field of <laughs> no i haven't heard medicine. that but yeah it's it's nice when the the residents that are you know they're courtesy of the military and they're doing work on you know the military dogs and you yeah. know 
what we're doing to help them. There's great populations of animals that are all, you know, in that higher risk category. Mm-hmm. With your interest in, I'm going to cycle, but I'm going to bounce into something clinical and I don't want to jump <laughs> off of your timeline because I think you've no. got a fascinating story. So with your interest in end of life care and managing pain and anesthesia, you know, one of the challenges that we always faced with the police dogs was, you know, when they're getting to that mid to late stage of their career and they're all Labradors or German Shepherds or Malinois, you know, and arthritis is the, the biggest concern. And certainly they were doing hip scores, but not using pen hip mm-hmm. as a technique back in the UK when I was involved. And so when we know that OFA is not terribly well correlated with, with any helpful reduction in arthritis, how were you managing? You know, one of the big things I liked was when JD was released. You know, and I, I'm always extremely skeptical of claims by anybody about anything. But the work was done by John Innes, and mm. you know, I know John and, and respected his work or respect his work. Sorry, John, it's not like I've lost respect <laughs> for you. And so it was compelling, and we, so we had a big body of police dogs to work with, and and started putting them onto the JD, and and were pretty stunned with the mm-hmm. impact that that seemed to have. Always hard to gauge objectively. But the handlers and then increasingly the pet owners were coming back and saying, this is incredible. And we were getting meloxicam doses down or animals off of meloxicam and keeping them in much better trim for longer. What ways, you know, in those groups of animals, were you seeing a a similar thing? And what strategies did you have? Because, you know, they retire them two years early. It's a disaster financially for for the... So it used to to be the the number one cause of death in the military, and this has been published, was GDV, like Twisted Summits. And now they've taken pretty much taken care of that with the PEXI. The number one cause of retirement is osteoarthritis and some development of behavioral problems. Right. And then the osteoarthritis is like when we do these training courses for, you know, the military or the the police dogs or any other working dog group, we always usually have a nutritionist, like talk to them about the evidence for, you know, what diet, you know, obviously they're spending a lot of energy and needs to be high quality protein, they're athletes. But, you know, we also know that their job and their breed predisposes them to OA. But with the breeding program that they have for the military dogs in the U.S., and certainly there's more than 2,000 dogs over, you know, military U.S. military dogs over overseas at the moment and growing. So they now have their own breeding program so they can at least control the genetics right. of, you know, the hips and yeah. the, who they're choosing as the sire and the, yeah. the mother. So that has, I think, improved a lot of the hip issues. But also, you know, their diet is now a hugely important part of, you know, should you wait until they have problems to start these special diets or should these, you know, athletes like be on these diets and nutraceuticals and anything yep. that can protect their, yep. you know, their cartilage early on in, in life. Yep. And then obviously correct training and not, you know, pushing them too young, too fast, all that type of stuff. So I think things have improved a lot with those dogs but it still can be an issue and then just to maybe segue a little bit the other issue that they realized that they were having these behavioral issues actually it would appear that dogs over in the middle east can suffer post-traumatic stress syndrome right and so now they have a lot of behaviorists involved in trying to prevent that happening and training and 
So they do things like now, it used to be always one trainer, one handler, one dog. And it was, that was it. But then of course, on you know, the real world is you've got to realize that you might lose a dog or you might lose a soldier. Yeah. And then, you know, what do you do if you've lost one of them? How, so they how? do a lot of cross training with different people. Yeah. And then they realized at 9-11 that a lot of the dogs that were live search and right, like that was their, the only job they knew was to look, go and look for a live person. Of course, nobody was mm. alive. And they, it's almost like they became completely dejected because they weren't finding anybody. Right. So they now do um, cross training so they can be cadaver yep. and, you know, finding live people. And they do think, they used to actually, out of the public eye and away from the press, they would sometimes hide a person from a search team and let the dog find them. Yep. So the dog thought he had done his job or her job, found the person. And then they have behaviorists to kind of check that they're not... Um, that they're not getting these traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, there's stories of like, you know, with flash fire and, you know, IED going off that, you know, it's a traumatic incident and they they have issues dealing with it or they won't go back into a certain dark building. Yeah, right. But they're trying to figure out behavioral techniques to, to stop that happening. And, and often they thought it was because the soldier themselves was having an issue that it rubbed off on the dog because of their bond right but they truly believe the dog itself unrelated to what the handler might be going through can have this um traumatic stress issue and it makes sense if you see, think about what they're dealing with every day what does this say about the state of where we're at in terms of understanding animal emotion in relation to human emotion <laughs> there's a boy this wasn't even on my list of things to talk about but I just think that we're like, you know, tapping into the mind of animals is still, you know, getting inside another person, like a human's head is hard, <laughs> uh, you know. So when you have someone that doesn't communicate in your language, I mean, that's why I think putting these teams together, like, yeah. you know, you've got the surgeons, you've got the the nutritionists, you've got the behaviorists, you've got the, tra you know, to help these dogs yeah. is like, you know, in behavior well, you probably know from your own practice, behavioral issues are sadly one of the number one reasons people need to give up their dog or have their dog right. euthanized. Right. It's huge. Yeah. It's a fascinating and a, I think a giant field that we're just really starting to... I mean, this is one of your other areas of great love. And I don't know if we said this in the last podcast or not, but, you know, the, the fact that we get taught so little of or, or were taught, I should be fair, okay. saying my experience you know, taught so little of, and actually had a very aloof, almost dismissive view of the importance of subjects like nutrition, behavior, yep. dentistry, and the human factor skills in, yep. in veterinary medicine. Yep. That, that there is now a lot of change occurring in yeah. the curriculum. It used to be totally, the whole curriculum was focused on physical health, yeah. right? And not emotional right. health of the pets. Yeah. And that's not just pets, it's you know, the animals we use for food, everybody's emotional, right? you know, how important that is to yeah. everything. But you're right, it is changing, and that is good. But, you know, the psychology of animals, so to say, or, you know, understanding that is fascinating it's and challenging. Of, actually, challenging is the right word, because, and it's one of this, and, and I don't want to turn this into a vegan rant at all, mm -hmm. but it's one of the things that finally just hit me in the face was simply... How can I, I took a Hippocratic oath mm -hmm. to 
not yeah. harm animals. And I couldn't, I could no longer find myself in a situation where I was okay with any form of animal suffering for my benefit. And I'm not putting myself yeah. on a pedestal there because no. I met and was a you know fully paid up card waving member of the you know the steak and chips and a bottle of Malbec <laughs> party. So, but I just got to the point where I just couldn't, in conscience, separate the experience from the product that was on the plate. And when you see videos, there's the most wonderful video on YouTube of cows playing with giant footballs footballs or you know they look like the big pilates balls they're just you know you just think wow there's so much more to these you know we've always thought it about pigs and dolphins and but there's so much more going on in all of these animals you know i think you touched on pigs i mean pigs are so intelligent i mean or i mean you know people say well you know why can you apply the word intelligence to you know, animals, I'm like, well, you can if you look at the science. But, you know, you look at what birds, I mean, I don't, what, what, where did that term bird brain ever come up? Because, you know, <laughs> there's some pretty, some very smart parrots out there that can look at color, shapes, all sorts of stuff. They've got, I mean, they're saying that their brain is as developed as a two-year-old human sometimes, <laughs> you know. So it, it's amazing to me. Now, Sheila, getting back on to you <laughs> and your story. So what then, so you, you've gone to Canada, you wind up in America. How, how did you wind up in America? And then why did you stay in America? You know, a lot of people go out and leave Scotland. And, mm. and my experience was to leave the UK and then to go back. So what kept you rooted over the side of the Atlantic? Yeah, so after Canada, that was a one-year, you know, fill-in for someone that needed a year away. They went off to Australia and had a great sabbatical, but they came back. So I was looking for a job, and I got a job in the U.S., and just one thing after another, and then I ended up marrying an American. <laughs> so that kept me here. Oh, not necessarily kept me here, but um, yeah, he would be happy to, you know, travel and go somewhere else but um yeah and then i just got great opportunities just came my way so or is, i went after them maybe is there a good story often there's funny stories about how how we meet our partners and things like that have you how yeah. did you so, guys so, end up meeting yes yeah, so and it's your partner of that no he's not so keith my husband of uh oh gosh 23 years now congratulations um, so i was living and working at, in michigan where the vet school is yep and unbeknownst to me, there's this guy that lived 50 miles away who was an uh, engineer. And winters are pretty harsh in Michigan. So I used to always go somewhere nice in the winter. And I was doing a lot of triathlons at the time. So I went to a swimming camp yep. in Barbados, actually. So I flew to Barbados with one of my girlfriends so we could get a week of sun but train like crazy yep. for our triathlon season coming yep. up. And this guy from 50 miles away in Michigan happened to be a triathlete as well. And he was at the same camp. Ah. And so we would go for runs in the morning together and chit chat, chit chat. And, you know, halfway through the camp, it, I was like, well, where'd you come from? He says, oh, I, I live in Michigan. I went, oh, so do I. <laughs> and so we, you know, trained that whole week together. And at the end of the week, he said, I'll give you a call when I get home. And I went, yeah, yeah, I heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> and... um few days after I got back, um, I got a phone call, and that was kind of it. So lived 50 miles apart, had no idea that we existed, ended up 
training, you know, in a swimming pool in, in Barbados and the rest is history. The rest is history. That's incredible. I had no idea you did triathlon. I don't think we talked about that last Yeah, I'm time. getting going to maybe try and get back into it this year. Kind of had a few medical challenges along the way in my life. But um, yeah, I think, I, I think I'd like to get, um, you know, not the crazy stuff, the long, like just the little ones. What did you used to, what, what level triathlon did you used to compete in? Uh, so actually, uh, maybe this sounds like I'm kind of being kind of big headed. I actually, this is Las Vegas we're at, right? Yep. So near here is Lake Mead. Yep. I actually competed in the national championships there. Amazing. Back in 1991. Wow. Yeah, national okay. championships. And that was uh, that was a brutal race up in the mountains here, up in Lake Mead. What altitude are we at here? Don't know. But enough to Enough be to make you out of breath. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I've not yeah. been running in Las yeah. Vegas. Yeah. It's not, yeah. not the sort of town I end up yeah. going running in. So, yeah, so I used to race up to the half half marathon Distance. So, so you're half. That's half Ironman. Half Ironman. Yeah. Okay. So half. Was that this, they call it seventy point three now? Is that yeah. is that what they call that? Yep. In kilometers. All right. So we're gonna. And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Because I, I used to do triathlon as well. Yeah. Um, though not to not to that level, but I would like to compete up to half iron. Yep. What was your best discipline? The run. The run. Swimming was my weakest link. I mean, I was a. I, Competed in high school as a swimmer, yep. but in breaststroke. Yeah, <laughs> so it's not the fastest one. <laughs> so I had to relearn my swimming technique. Hence the trip to Barbados, and then I kind of got a handle on bike biking. But yep. running was my first and best sport, and yep. then I added the triathlon, yep. the other two parts to my triathlon training. The amusing, my amusing story about triathlon. I'm just, I'm curious about your first experiences. How did you? get on moving because a lot of us in triathlon start out pool swimming and then end up moving over into open water swimming did you have any fun experiences in that transition yeah i mean it depending on whether you're in like the best thing to do for your first ever attempt in not a swimming pool is to go in salt water right because you float better because yeah you suddenly oh, you're like you're wow your i can actually brain working again yeah, yeah you actually think you're good with a wetsuit on as with well. a wetsuit with a wetsuit on so you're floating so easier and then go in salt water and you that'll be your best um, transition to do well, the one thing that i never could handle though was really cold water i mm. just I mean, that actual reflex that we all know we have, again, you know, your physiology comes back to remind you, when your face goes in really cold water, your heart rate like plummets yeah. and, and it can be quite frightening. So, and you hyperventilate and you, as well, And you hyperventilate. You? So never just jump in, like my first disastrous triathlon was in Toronto, dived off the dock. It was, it was a, you know, you started out on the dock yeah. and, um, you know, I just hadn't decided to get in and test out the water. I dove off the dock and just like, I think my heart rate went to like 12 and I was like, oh, we're in trouble here. Did you know what happened? Did you nearly pass out or just um, no energy? I, I struggled and the rescue boat came up to me and they were like, okay, do you know what day of the week it is? And I was like, yeah. Like, who's the president of America? Uh, I know who that is. And they were trying to get me to quit because yeah. um, I was hypothermic and I refused. I was the absolute last out of the water, which yeah. was, you know, I was usually, you know, up, up yeah. at the front. Yeah. I crawled out, you know, shivering, got on my bike. It yeah. wasn't a very nice warm day. Yeah. Um, blue hands. 
you know, got, got, you know, there wasn't even, I think mine was the last bike in the, in the bike rack, did my run around. And then finally I got on the run and, um, started warming up and picking off people. But I think I would have regretted quitting. It was my worst ever performance, but in a way, the one I was most proud of because I didn't quit, but it it took me like hours to warm up after that race. It was miserable. (laughs) It is an event that, that tests you. I find the sighting and then my first open water swim because I and my first one was in the rowing tank at Dorney, just outside of Windsor, Oof. where they did the Olympic rowing mm. for the 2012 games. And it was significantly pre 2012 games, and I had swum in the pool and I was I was pretty fast, and then I got my wetsuit on. and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm really fast. This is going to be great. So I decided that in my first ever open water swim, I would go at the front of, and they're called waves. Yep. And so I was at the front of the wave, and I thought, right, you know what? I won't go right at the front, because I'm definitely not going to be the best. But I, I don't want to get caught up in the pack. So I, I went right behind the best swimmers, or the, who are up the front. And so we started swimming, and it's just, a, it's basically, it's imagine looking at a, a net of fish being landed, and it's just everybody's thrashing in the water. And that's the way it starts. And then, so I swam and I started out swimming hard and I immediately got kicked in the face, which knocked my goggles, no, which filled the water. The usual kick in the face, goggles right. off, right? water in the eyes. <laughs> so then I sort of slow down and starts, you know, so I'm sort of, then you, you in, instantly sort of panic a little bit. And obviously all of your competitors have great empathy and compassion for your situation in that moment. Not. And so I got, <laughs> the, all, the, all the people in behind me just swam over the top of me. Mm-hmm. And so I just got beat up and tumbled, bounced around the, the tumble dryer kind of thing. And then I came up gasping for air, my goggles askew, like just looked like I'd been dragged. And I ended up breast, like breaststroking a bit. And then I got my goggle back on, started swimming when I, I'd, I'd sort of recovered myself a bit. And then the next thing I know, I get this tap on the shoulder and it's one of the rescue boats. And he's pointing, <laughs> he's going, it's that way. And I've swum off 90 degrees in the middle of the course because I have no idea how to sight. And there's no bottom, You can. there's no yeah. lines in the bottom. So it was a comedy of errors that first one. Yeah, sighting those buoy, like, you know, like jumping up like a seal yeah. to sight the buoy and then yeah. putting your head down. Right, and right. Sighting again, yep. It's fantastic fun. Thoroughly, thoroughly recommend triathlon to anyone anyone who's interested. Now, Sheila, last time you were on, and I asked you if it was okay to ask you, you know, you mentioned some of your health concerns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't answer any questions you don't feel like answering, but you are a cancer survivor, right? Correct. And I was just, I wanted to talk about that because it's probably not an uncommon thing for lots of us in veterinary medicine to sort of go through what was your experience what was your your challenge and and what was the experience like going through that what happened yep so so it was breast cancer right and i was actually quite young i was in my late 30s when it happened no family history no predisposing causes good you know health style yep. lifestyle was good yeah, right you know? you're doing triathlon yeah, doing, you're yep. eating well yep. i mean you're, you look fit as a yep. fiddle yep. i'm sure so you it's always just, have you know it was just one of those things and luckily it got um i'd had a completely normal mammogram done eight months prior to me realizing something was wrong going in and um actually 
them measuring a seven centimeter tumor. Oh, wow. Yeah, in a period of eight months. So when you realized something was wrong, was that, you, you could feel it was something yeah. wrong? Yeah, so it was, wasn't. you know, like woman being very, you know, you should know to self-check and, right, you know, right. all, all the things that they tell you. Right. And um, I was like, okay, this doesn't feel right. Yep. You know, called my doctor, she says, come on in. They sent me over for an ultrasound and another mammogram. And they were like, yeah, we need to biopsy this. And it all happened very quickly, which is, you know, in the U.S., you know, health insurance is expensive. But if you have it, usually things happen pretty quickly. And I, and I live in a, I was living in a, in a city where there's a lot of um, university hospitals. So, yeah. you know, I was in the right place at the right time. Yep. You know, so they were like, yeah, you know, we should biopsy this. So they do the biopsy and they said, we'll call you. And, you know, often they make you go in, but they actually called me 48 hours later and you heard the words, you know, you, you do have breast cancer and yep. you need to see a surgeon. Yeah. So I was referred to a surgeon who I immediately liked. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I just felt very comfortable with him, his attitude, how he treated my husband, how he explained things in non-medical terms to him. And I think what helped most of all was, you know, they just lay it all out. Here's the options, here's the plan, let's make a decision. And then you self-educate yourself. Yeah. The 48-hour the, the, the wait for the biopsy was probably the worst part. Then once you had a plan, things were pretty good. And so I ended up with a lot of surgery. We were going to do radiation, but, yep. you know, there was all sorts of complications with, you know, not clean margins and taking out lymph nodes and so on. And then adjunct therapy with tamoxifen. And then got through all of that, and two years later, it happened again on the other side. So, oh, got that one done. Was that better? I'm, I'm curious. You know, the state of mind, the impact. Those, those two days, mm. that would have been, imagine, a terrifying time. You know, was a little bit of knowledge a bad thing in that moment? And, and obviously, you don't have a little no. bit of knowledge, but you know, have a massive amount of knowledge in the animal field. Yeah. What was? Your mindset. Your mind well, I, th I think you know it's one of those things. Everyone says, "Oh, you know, you'll deal." You know, it's like it's not something you ever expect to happen, and it's all to do with like you know being educated, having the right team, making the right decisions, or having someone help you make those decisions, and knowing what your options are, and having good support from your friends and your family. Yeah, and then moving forward with the plan. And so all of that is now um, happened in 2006 and 2008. So we're now, yep. you know, a full 10 years out. Yep. And, you know, I did get the genetic testing done because I do have a sister yep. and I was negative. But um, lo and behold, she had the exact same tumor three years ago, much later in life. Right. But her diagnosis was identical to mine. So there's a lot we don't know about the genetics of breast cancer. When you developed the problem on the other side, were you able to process that more easily because it was second time round, or was it a, a bigger blow at that point? Like, cause um, you're such a positive person. Yeah, That's one of the re yeah. reasons I love spending time with you. Well, and, yeah. And those are, those are challenging <laughs> things to go so, through. So I think, actually, one of the first things that came out of my mouth the first time, and maybe even the second time, was, I don't have time for this. <laughs> I've got things to do. Huh. <laughs> I've got things to do. I don't have time for this. And then it was like, oh, okay, you know. And then you kind of go, okay, we, you know, yeah, we do have time for this because it needs to be taken care of. Yeah. But um, I remember 
but this is how I got my Mini Cooper. I think we might have we talked about that. We did talk about so your love of Mini Cooper Because when I was like, just kind of like, oh gosh, if I have breast cancer, I'm getting a Mini Cooper. And then the results came back. Yes, you do. It was like, oh. So my husband's first response was, well, what color Mini Cooper are you getting? <laughs> so, and then he says, okay, what are we going to do? Right. But I had a, I had a wonderful, wonderful team, medical team yep. that I had complete faith in and um, read a lot about, you know, about the disease and, and then what you do need to do is you need to go and find people that have been through the same thing because nobody that hasn't been through it gets it, you know. So there's a lot of breast cancer support groups as there yeah. are for other cancers. And I would highly advise that if you have a chronic, you know, medical disease, whatever you've got, if you can find a support group, then go to it. I mean, if you, you know, if you have addiction, if you have, you know, breast cancer, it doesn't matter if you go and talk to people that, have experienced it it helps a lot right just talking actually makes a big impact yeah because i mean people say things to you like oh if if anyone can get through this it's you you're so tough you're so this you're like well you know it's got nothing to do with that it's to do with my team my diagnosis but you know people mean well but they right. don't they don't know what to say right right they don't of know course. what to say of course it's almost you can't relate to it unless you've actually lived it yeah and i you know i got very lucky being where I was with the sport I had and everything's gone well and so far so good. I guess the message is always if you find something, get it checked. Yes. And, you know, I did, you know, meet quite a few women on my journey that said they kind of suspected, but they were scared to go and, you know, and find out because what if it was? And I'm like, you know, that that is a, you know, maybe that's because they're not, they weren't medically inclined. Whereas I was like, okay, if you see something, a lump, you kind of go and do something about it. Yeah. But and what you know, it's what if it was different. What yeah. if what if it was? Yeah. What if it was? Even, then the yeah. sooner the better. Well, so glad that you know so much time has passed and, oh, and yeah. you're well, you're fit. Moving direction, jarringly as usual for me. You helped recently. I came to you with a question because in the United Kingdom we had a, a supply issue with isoflurane, and it was one of those moments where you know. It's almost like risk assessment planning. You know, everything's fine, everything's fine until it's not fine. And then you think, ooh, this is actually a pretty significant risk factor for us not being able to get access to this. And so I don't know if, if this happened around the world. I think it was just one of the UK manufacturers went bust or there was a production issue. And so we could no longer, it just had a massive impact on the supply chain of isoflurane. And so we were told at very short notice, basically, you could have a bottle of Zizofluorin per month or per week. I forget exactly what it was. Anyway, it was it was about a tenth of what anybody could have realistically required. And so I called you up and said, hey, Sheila, so my team need an option here. Are you able to help? And so we did a really fascinating bit of training. And it, and it really just opened up the thought, too, of we get very dependent on certain things. And we almost don't have redundancy. And so you came up with some sort of novel novel approaches for us to be able to work, you know, continue to work without anesthetics. Talk us through, first of all, talk us through them. And also, you know, we have the impending doom of Brexit coming up, which is going to have all sorts of supply with issues, no drugs. potentially, with no drugs. Let's talk about that. Let's maybe talk about, you know, anesthetic alternatives and and just keeping our minds open to other ways of doing things. Yeah. And then, yeah, it's also a risk management factor. 
so it goes back to, and I'll never, you know, I can't ever thank, you know, the Jeremy Luke for training me in anesthesia way back in Bristol. Because, I mean, he, he instilled in me that you need to have plan A, <laughs> plan B, because plan A doesn't always go right, plan B, and probably C and D, because you just never know how a case is going to go. Right. And you don't want to be realizing that plan A isn't working and you don't have a plan B. So I think right. agility, you know, if you're a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, like things have to happen and you make decisions. Yeah. And so I think that was, you know, my training was good for that. And you then had this like sudden catastrophic isoflurane like shortage. And in the US, we actually have faced uh, a huge issue with not being able to source opioids right. for animals because we have an opioid crisis, you know, in humans, like overdosing yep. and Oxycontin and so on. And one of the ways that the federal government have decided to fix this, I don't think it's the, the way to fix it is they're just going to decrease production of opioids. And that includes the ones that human anesthesiologists use, like fentanyl, you know, a lot of the, and so the production was cut by over 25% in 2016 and then 17 and then again 18 and there's another cut this year and then we also have things that you never expect like hurricanes mm -hmm. that wipe out you know an area where all the manufacturing is so costa rica is one of the main places we get fluids ethicon suture is from there and a lot of drugs so we had a crisis and again you know we had become you know Opioids are always part of a peri-anesthetic, you know, yeah. acute surgical protocol. So we had to start thinking outside the box, but so did human yeah. anesthesiologists. And then you didn't have isoflurane, so you have to think of what to do. So with the isoflurane shortage, what we needed to realize is that um, one way to save isoflurane is to switch to low-flow anesthesia because mm. the flow meter doesn't need to be set at two liters right. with circle systems. Right, right. Yeah, on your non-rebreathers with the little teeny kitty cats, yep. there's nothing you can do. Yep. But with the circle systems, you really can go down to just delivering the oxygen that they need for their metabolic requirements. And that will, A, use a lot less of the liquid in your vaporizer and also less pollution, so it's good right. for the world, and keeps the animals warmer. Warmer. Because they're rebreathing. So just doing that. That best always done with capno capnography? Yeah, just for, knowing for that. Increased safety? Increased safety. I mean, capnography always helps. You know, we just look at the size of the reservoir bag because if you're not giving them enough and they're consuming more than is in the circuit, the bag will get smaller. Mm -hmm. If the bag keeps on getting bigger, you're giving them more than they need. So you can just titrate your flow meter so that your bag stays. Based you know, on the tension you can yeah, observe basically. in your bag. Yep. So that could make your isoflurane bottle last a lot longer. So that's one thing, but you can still do everything the way that you were doing it. But if that bottle, you know, is empty, vaporizer's empty, then I talked to your team about, well, you know, try, you know, on one of your, like a dog neuter, which is going to be healthy and not a long procedure, try doing it with your pre-med's going to be the same, induction's the same. And you're going to keep that dog asleep on little boluses of propofol. And you're still going to have him intubated and on his oxygen. Nothing will change. They just There's nothing in the vaporizer. And instead of like working with the vaporizer, you're working with your syringe of propofol. And if you do it on a healthy, fairly short procedure first, 
your confidence will just go through the roof and you'll be able to do it. And I remember showing up at a spay-neuter clinic in Mexico to help a team from a university down there and we went to a village and we had no anesthesia machines. <laughs> and we were doing spays and neuters with good surgeons, so they should have been short, but, you know, we ran into problems with some and, you know, I was ending up doing, you know, total intravenous anesthesia for up to two hours, you know, in the village square in Mexico. And we did it, right? Because the dog was already asleep, wide open. We had no choice. Yep, you had right? to do it. Yep. And in the U.S., what we've now learned is that we need to be less dependent on opioids. So what we're now realizing is that local anesthetics, we should have been using them, you know, as one of our top analgesics because they're complete analgesics. You don't need as much anesthetic because everything, you know, if you think about a cow, you do surgery on a cow just with local, right? So have that on board. We've got new products coming out in the U.S., bupivacaine injections that last for 72 hours. So it takes care of the post-op you know, analgesia as well. So we are right. now Far switching, switching, you know, used to be the, you know, the sort of, the most popular kids on the block for anesthesia were non-steroidals and opioids. And now the new kids on the block, so to say, are, you know, are local anesthetics and the non-steroidals because right. we just can't get the opioids that we're used to. And human anesthesiologists are in the same boat, going very much into learning, you know, local regional analgesic techniques, local anesthetics, using a lot of ketamine, CRIs instead of opioids. And actually what they're finding is that they're liking the outcome. There's less nausea, less GI issues. Yep. So everybody's adapted to meet the, you know, the, the crisis that was imposed on us. Right. And so it's just agility um, to be able to do your job. And thinking. And, I, I, and I, thinking. I just like the way that you've outlined that there as a sort of systems-based thinking. You mm -hmm. know, it's like the profile just, don't freak out. It's now it's your vaporizer. That's what it yep. is. So, what level of like how much propofol does one have to give on an ongoing basis? Again, is it just titrated according yeah. to your stand? You know, just looking at this the anesthetic depth. Yeah. So when I was talking to your team, who are well trained and very attentive, it does you know require a very attentive nurse running the anesthesia, and we talked about you know if you you know maybe sedate your dog a little heavier than you used to like yep. maybe give them a little bit more dexmedetomidine than you used to yep. your opioids on board you induce and then i was recommending to them that you did the put lidocaine in the testicle yep. if, you know because then that's going to take away a lot of the stimulus as well and then the nurse is literally just as they were you know they're looking for the blink the jaw getting tight yeah and when that happens i mean the sort of we usually recommend you give another just half a mig per kilo as a little bolus right there and then and have that figured out ahead of time. You, you, you're 20 kilo, big dog spay. Yep. So you're giving 10, you know, so 10 milligrams and they may not even need that, yep. right? They go back to where they were, you know, you check it. It's just like turning up your vaporizer, turning it down. Do you need some more local? And literally the dog might be getting a little light and the surgeon says, I'm done. So you're done. So it was incredible just to look at the way that things have evolved and now looking at the way that the team go about their anesthetics, they've retained some of the additional things that they learned from you. 
and they've adapted that into yeah. their practice now so is that even though we now have ISO, there's much less reliance and a much greater comfort level with thinking outside mm. of the box, yep. um, which is great to see. No, it's, it's good when you see a team like just come together and say, you know, what's our choice? We shut down the clinic and we can't help animals or we figure out. Or you, you figure know, it out. Or you figure it out. And Go figure it they, out. And they did. Yeah, which is phenomenal. With your help, which was astonishing. On that track and keeping on aesthetics, because it would be criminal of me not to ask you some anesthesia questions whilst you're here what are the top three you give us great information in the last podcast by the way if you've not listened to sheila's last podcast go back and and listen to it uh, episode 16 but what are the top three myths i didn't ask you about the myths you give me lots of information but what would your top three myths that sort of really need debunking what are those uh, so myths and misconceptions about anesthesia. Yeah. Well, there's quite a few of them. Certainly, when you talk to clients, there are a lot of clients that go to, you know, Dr. Google and breed websites and they come in and they tell you, my dog is breed X and it says they can't have drug Y. Oh, huskies. Huskies Die are, under or boxers. Boxers. So, so the UK boxers right. actually... And that's not totally a myth that they're sensitive to ace promazine. Right. Because I have seen some like have a vagal syncope with it. Yep. So that that maybe isn't a myth. But, you know, I get told certain cats can't have this and there's no background to that. Other myths. Oh, old dogs. You know, they're too old for anesthesia. Oh, that one drives me crazy. <laughs> that one's too, they're too that old. That must drive you absolutely That nuts. drives me absolutely crazy. Or saying, well, after a certain age, the risks of anesthesia are just too high. And that's a myth. That's a myth that needs to be debunked because I have very young dogs, you know, that I've anesthetized that are much higher risk than an old dog that needs his rotten teeth, like, taken care of. Right. So that's a myth that the age, like, dictates whether or not you can have anesthesia or not. There's definitely things you need to think about, but age on its own is not a reason not to do anesthesia. One of the ones that, and I was as guilty as anybody about trotting this line out to clients was that, you know, the really risky parts of anaesthetic or induction, it's like flying a plane, it's takeoff and landing, and it's, that's, they're, they're the bits, the bit in the middle is fairly steady. But that's not true, is it? I no, mean, that's not. And so the, the big study that came out from Dave Broadbelt's huge study in the UK that was done over a two-year period. So what we now know is that the commonest time of death is the first three hours after anaesthesia. Right, and that's what 50% of anesthesia deaths occur. Yep, so 50% of dogs and 61% of cats. Yep. Yep, so after Dave's study came out, it changed how I practiced. And I think we might have talked a little bit about right, that. Right, right, So they need, you know, I think they have a lot of people looking at them and around them during the procedure in the theater. And then we go to recovery and we withdraw all that support and no one's watching them. And so we have things like, airway obstruction they maybe start shivering so then they get you know hypoxic this shivering thing sheila go into that because we i'm not sure we went into that in heaps of detail but i was you talked about this when you did a a lecture for for my training group and it was just the colossal impacts of shivering and becoming cold yep really that's that was one of my big takeaways was man we you know patient warming is just so not an optional extra for good yeah. anesthesia. Yeah. 
No, I mean, if you keep them warm, you know, and you you need to do it, they start to lose heat as soon as you pre-medicate them or sedate them because that alters, you know, thermal thresholds and yep. everything in your brain. And if you're using acepromazine or acetylpromazine, they vasodilate so they can lose body heat. Yep. So keeping them warm from the minute they arrive at your clinic and then all the way through and you know, not throwing, you know, lots of alcohol on them and, and getting them wet, all those things. Yep. But yeah, if you get cold under anesthesia, you actually require less anesthetic. But if that's not adjusted, they're, they're likely getting an overdose. Blood only functions in a very narrow temperature range because enzymes that are important for clotting. So animals bleed and yep. lose a lot more blood when they're cold. Um, so that's a huge I- issue. That must be a misconception as well. Cause that's you hear, a misconception. Because when you cool down, you get vasoconstriction and you don't, you know, that's what they're always saying. Like, war people who lost blood in the field live for longer because they got so cold. And that sounds well, like... Th- yeah, that might preserve their brain, but right. um, cold animals, so it takes a lot longer. And there is data in dogs yep. in vitro showing it takes longer for the clot to form. Yep. I mean, when it eventually forms, it is as strong, yep. but all those enzymes are temperature dependent. Right. So bleeding... And all the while you're bleeding. Yeah. So bleeding is an issue when you're losing cold. Losing more blood, yeah, losing getting more colder. Blood. And then also, you know, just blood doesn't flow normally when yep. it's very cold. So the rheology, like another whole science of how blood flows in vessels, yep. that changes. And actually, there is strong data in humans and some data to back it up in the veterinary literature that the incidence of post-operative wound infection is much higher if you get hypothermic during the procedure. And in human medicine, that means the person stays in the hospital longer, has a wound infection, da-da. And we, we're pretty sure that's the same with animals. Right. You know, even if they have antibiotics on board, if you're cold, it's not being carried to where it needs to go because of what's going on with, you know, vascular shunting and vasoconstriction. And then when you start to wake up, the only thing you can do to warm up is shiver. And shivering is one of the most unpleasant things that people complain about post-op. So the three things are pain, nausea, and shivering. And waking up cold is very aversive. And the other thing is if someone just did a large laparotomy on you, and you were cold, so you've got a lot of muscle tense and you're shivering. Think about the wound edges and how much more painful yeah. and unpleasant that is. And then they've taken away your oxygen mask and your muscles are going crazy trying to generate heat, which, you know, so you can, Consuming actually, more oxygen. You can actually become hypoxic because yeah, you're back right. on room air. So, yep, the only thing good cold is a beer. <laughs> Right. There's no such thing as a, as a, unless you're doing like some crazy, you know, open heart surgery where you're meant to cool the patient down. There's nothing good about letting your patients get cold. I was going to ask and I thought it would be an interesting way to maybe wind up and just ask you, you know, it's 12 months since we last spoke. What are you working on just now and um, what's got your attention clinically at the moment? You're still working with Lap of Love. Yep. So it's coming up for my two year anniversary with Lap of Love. Um thoroughly enjoyed it, the culture of the company and what we're doing. We just realized or um, we got the statistics from last year. We helped 48,000 families wow. um, say goodbye to their pets last year. And currently my computer is about <laughs> to explode with data sheets. But last year we prospectively collected data from 
2,600 cat euthanasias and 10,500 dog euthanasias. So we had a group of our vets that have been with us for a, you know quite a long period of time that were very confident in you know, with what they were doing. So we f- got a form that we wanted them to collect information from euthanasia appointments. And now I'm analyzing them. So what we're looking at is the age at euthanasia of the dogs and the cats, the breed, their body condition score right. at the time, and what the referring veterinarian diagnosis was for you know what is this reason for euthanasia or what the owner told us and then i'm collecting data on any side effects of the sedation protocols that we've developed for dogs and cats and then looking at information that just isn't out there if you don't go intravenously and you go by another route how long does it take for the heart to stop right you know because that's just it's nowhere i can't find that information anywhere so we've prospectively collected all of this data. So I'm going to analyze the cat data first because even though it's 2,600 cats, it's a smaller data set than the dogs. And it'll be really interesting to see what the number one... I think there's going to be a big difference just kind of eyeballing it. The reasons for euthanasia in cats so far look quite different from dogs. So in both dog and cat, cancer is very high. Right. In dogs... Mobility issues is very high, yep. but in cats, even though we know that they have a lot of OA issues, it's not coming up as a cause. Cats are coming up more, you know, cancer's number one at the moment, and then multiple conditions, which I think yep. is typical of cats. It's more than one thing. and They just collect things that we, yep. we're just unaware of. Yep. And to be honest, one of the reasons that we're going to have to um, purse out a little bit is like one of the reasons for euthanasia is old age is what we're being told. Yeah. And so we have to figure out what that what does that really mean? Does it mean the cat has six different chronic conditions and it's right. time to say goodbye? So I think that's going to be fascinating. And, you know, of course, the company, we always want to be better and better. And if we find some relationship between a disease and a reaction to the sedation, then maybe we can, you know, make things even more, you know, specific or you know, sedation techniques for this disease or how we could make certain things better. So that's what we're looking at. That's what I'll be looking at on giant Excel files. <laughs> for <laughs> the next, I'm actually yeah. I'm actually going up to um, Michigan to meet with my the statistician who's actually a soft tissue surgeon. So he really gets veterinary data, which is like huge when you need statistics done. So I'm going up to visit with him actually next week to show him my data and for him to help me format it and code it and see how we're going to do the analysis. That's phenomenal. And we'll be publishing it. Right, and you guys published this and you have a lot of amazing resources that you share with the professional mm-hmm. from on everything from you know your sedation protocols data evidence based on the work that you're doing where do people go to download that i know you guys have a download page where you share a lot of this stuff yep so we actually have a veterinary that's for veterinarians to get into so lapoflove.com and then we have a resources and we have a password for that which I might have to check with my boss, Dr. Mary. At the moment, I think it's called, the password to get into it is DVM support. Yep. But we can make sure we get this right, yep. completely right. Yep. And once you're inside that site, you have all of our sedation protocols, 
there's informational leaflets. I mean, there's things like, you know, tells you like if there's a child of a certain age present at euthanasia, you know, what are the likely things that you should think about, you know. So we have information about children at different ages and how they might deal with it or, you know, and so different, language, the different, way you and different resources or books or things for right. them to help them um, say goodbye to their pet. I mean, there's just, there's disease condition leaflets that you can use if you have a, a certain type of case that you can use as educational material for owners and, and Lap of Love have opened that up to veterinarians to use. And I feel a little bad because last time, last time you gave out your email address on the show, and now you get emails yeah, all the time from no, people. No, and it, but it's been Are really you? good. I've had some amazing like um, reconnections from you know from the past. Yeah. Where you know totally, I'm like someone emails me and said, "I just heard you on <laughs> Dr. Dave's uh, podcast. It's so good." And then we have a wee catch up, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness!" Well, you can share it again if you want. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. put you on the spot to yeah. do that. Yeah, so it's it's been nice. It's been nice to um, catch up with people and hear what people are doing, and and people kind of now knowing where what I'm doing and everything. Yeah. Well, it's it's great work, Sheila. You know, I think the athletics world is better for having Laura Muir running, <laughs> yes. running the way she's running, and yep. I know for a fact the veterinary world is better for having Dr. Sheila Robertson. So, thank you again so much for your time. It's well, always thanks, a pleasure. Hey folks, just me before you jump off and do whatever it is you do with your time. Now I want to say thank you so much to Sheila for a magnificent round two. Please show her some love wherever you encounter her. And also, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to tell your friends about Blunt Dissection. The more listeners, the more guests, the more fun we can have with the podcast, and the more I keep doing them. Final thing is, if you are that young vet and you do recognize that these non-clinical skills are important, don't forget to go to Vetex International dot com forward slash thrive to find out more about how vetex thrive can help you until next time on blunt dissection be safe be well and be happy <laughs>